remember the story of uh, Goldilocks and the three bears? I, I, I don't really remember the moral of that story. I know that I always used to think it was really strange that uh, this little girl was some in somebody else's house, eating their food, sitting on their chairs, trying out their beds. I don't think that was the moral of the story. At least it wasn't at my house. But what I do remember is that every issue had three options. One was too extreme one way, you know, too hot, too hard. The other option was too extreme the other way, too cold, too soft. And then the uh, that last third one was what? Just right. Yeah, you know the story. Well, that's the case with the uh, issue at the church at Corinth. They had a view of ministers and ministry that was too high. Some of the people in the church believed that they would gain a higher status and get a better wisdom if they associated with certain uh, ministers. Some of the people did not have a view that was too high, but on the other end of the spectrum, they had a view of ministers that was too low. They believed that they were self-sufficient and did not need human ministers at all. So in our sermon text today, Paul is going to give them a view of ministers and ministry that is what? Just right. To do this, he's going to use three metaphors. Now, they're not three metaphors about bears, so that's where that story stops. Paul picks up this storytelling metaphor, and he, and he uses three metaphors that give us a proper perspective about God and his church and those who minister to it. So even before we begin, uh, those of you who are members, regulars, attend, attenders, and, and some who... Um, who are just guests with us today. We're preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. I don't have an axe to grind here. I don't think that people in this room actually have the problem that the church at Corinth had. Now, maybe somebody does have too high of a view of human ministers. Maybe some do have too low of a view of human ministers. I, I don't know that. I don't detect that in our particular church. But if that's your case this morning, then you will get a correct perspective. You, Paul's going to help you to bring both of those perspectives down to one that is just right. But as I have studied this this week, I think the, the takeaway for me will likely be the same takeaway for you, I, this text caused me to glorify God and understand ministry and value the church more than ever. And that's my prayer for you. So our sermon text is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 through 17. Thank you, Nick, for reading that for us um, a few minutes ago. Look at that on your page, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5 through 17. I want to show you 
the three metaphors that Paul uses. This is an iconic text. And often what we do with iconic texts is we reach in and we grab really cool verses out and we don't realize that it's in a a larger paragraph where Paul might actually be doing something else with it. And so some of the iconic sayings that we're really familiar with are actually in a three metaphor chain here. Let me show them to you, these three metaphors. And, And Paul is going to give us this just right perspective on the church and those who minister to it. Metaphor number one is you are God's field. That's verses five through the beginning of verse nine. Look at the imagery in verse six there, planting, watering, that's agricultural field kind of image. And then at the at the beginning of verse nine, he closes this metaphor off. Do you see what it says there? You are God's field. So metaphor number one is the church is God's field, verses 5 through 9a. Then he switches metaphors. What does he say next at the, at the end of verse 9? You are God's what? Building. So metaphor number two is the church is God's building. And then you'll see construction language all the way down through there. So Logan and Rusty and And other guys who are handymen, you're going to be like, oh, all right, yes, foundations, building supplies, hammers, nails, cabinetry, all right? God's field, God's building goes from 9a through verse 15. Then he gives a third metaphor in verse 16 and 17. Metaphor number three, you are God's temple. Do you see that? Verse 16, don't you know that you are God's temple? And he closes it out in verse 17, you are God's temple. God's field, God's building, God's temple. So that rather than reading our entire sermon text again, I'm just going to read the portions that are associated with each of those metaphors as we go through. And remember, I I think that What you're going to take away from this is you're going to just glorify God and understand ministry and value God's church more than ever. Right? Metaphor number one. The church is God's field. Look back in verse three and let's kind of get a running start into what Paul is saying in our sermon text. Look at verse three. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, uh oh, bad stuff happening at the church of Corinth. Are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. 
and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Paul wants to help us as he helped the church at Corinth to have the right perspective on ministers and ministry. So he backs up and he talks first about God having a field and having workers in the field. He uses the metaphor of the church as God's field. Now, obviously here, it's God's field. It belongs to him. God's the the landowner. The church is his field. You might think of it as a, uh, a large field with lots of crops. You might think of it as a vineyard, which was actually the Old Testament imagery in Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. But all of this is based on God being the creator and giver of life, and God has a field because he desires what? He desires fruit. He desires a crop. And in that imagery, in Isaiah chapter 5, God tells us what he's looking for. Listen to Isaiah 5, when he talks about the vineyard of the Lord being the house of Israel, his people. He says, God looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. God looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God is looking for the fruit of righteousness and love, love of God, love of one another in his field. And so to cultivate this, God has servants, laborers in the field whose work it is to plant and water and cultivate. And what's happening here at the church at Corinth is that the field has a wrong perspective about the laborers. The church has a wrong perspective about the men and the women who are serving it. Now, specifically, I say women because I'm including all of us. Yes, this is specifically talking about apostles who were male only. It is talking about vocational elders and pastors. But I don't think we have to stop there. Because in some sense, we all get to work in God's field. We get to have a ministry in each other's lives. So the specific application here is about God's church. But you know, parents, you might think about this as how you are cultivating your own family. Or maybe husbands and wives, how you are planting and watering the gospel in your marriage or neighbor's and co-workers as well. These are acceptable applications, though it is not the proper interpretation of this text. To interpret it properly, we need to keep it to the church, and specifically guys like Paul and Apollos and Peter. So, Paul uses this metaphor to give us a perspective of the human ministers and their ministry. And here's sort of the perspective of this field in a in a nutshell. The church is God's field and those who labor are important. But God is the one who ultimately does the work. Those who labor are important, 
But God does the work. God is the primary worker in his field. His servants are important, but they're not primary, nor are they insignificant. Don't have too high of you and don't have too low of you. So Paul knocks this one down and brings this one up to a view that is just right. And he does this by giving us six perspectives on Christian ministers and their ministry. I'm just going to go through these very quickly. Paul did not intend for us to study this in every detail. He just wants us to get the big picture from this metaphor. That's what metaphors are for. So don't strain everything for for every little detail. But let's just see some of the things that Paul says here. Six perspectives on Christian ministers. Number one, in verse five, ministers are what? God's servants. What is is Apollos? Servants. Through whom God does his work. You see in verse five, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. This counters those who have a too low of a view. Anthony Thistleton says, uh, Apollos and Paul are not merely optional extras for the church's convenience, but those whom God in Christ has called to this necessary task or role. God uses his servants in his church and in our lives. And friends, we ought to be very thankful for that ministry. Each of these servants has been assigned to his task by God, and it's an important role. But nonetheless, let's recognize they're just servants. Paul, an apostle, is a servant of God through whom God has done his work. Number two, look at verse six. The minister, they have their role but only God can give the growth. Look at verse six. Paul says, I planted. All right, that was my role. Apollos watered. And Paul does this on purpose because he was the first one there. He's the one who planted the gospel. And Apollos came later and watered the gospel. But notice his point. God gave the growth. It's God alone who can give the growth. Just like a farmer can plant the seed, but it's God alone who can give the growth. Ministers have their role, but only God can give the growth, friends. Ministers will come and go, but God's work continues. And that's true of apostles. That's true of the reformers. That's true of your favorite celebrity pastor. That's true of your local pastor. Ministers have their role, but only God gives growth. Number three, verse seven. Ministers are important, but God is primary. Look at verse seven. So, because God gave the growth, and is he the only one who can give the growth? So, verse seven, neither he he who plants, Paul, nor he who waters, Apollos, is anything. Translated, Nothing. But only God who gives the growth. So this is now combating the too high of a view. Oh, you think Paul is everything. No, Paul says of himself, I'm nothing. Because only God can give the growth. This 
crushes those who have too high a view of Christian ministers. The teachers that you think give you a high spiritual status are not anything. They're nothing unless God gives the growth through them. And so consider this. What fruit and growth will come from any pastor's ministry unless God gives it by his grace? Absolutely no growth whatsoever. And so ministers are important, but God is primary. Number four. Verse eight tells us, he who plants and he who waters are one. You see, they were pitting them against each other as rivals. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm a MacArthur guy. I'm a Sproul guy. Whatever. As if they're rivals against each other. Paul says, hold on, time out. Same team. They're one. They're not rivals. One is a is a linebacker on defense. The other one is a running back on offense. But they're one in their purpose. They're one in their goal. They're one with their message. They're one on the same team serving the same God. They're not rivals. They're united. Friends, few things will bring unity to the church. The church or this church, like working, giving, struggling, praying and planting the gospel in our community, in your family, in our nation, in our world. Ministers are united in the same work when they're faithful to God. Number five. At the end of verse eight, he gives another perspective and each These workers, laborers who are one, each will receive his wages according to his labor. So while the ministers are united in the same work, number five, ministers will be rewarded from the same master. Same work, same master, though there might be different reward. Each will receive his wages according to to his labor. The emphasis here is not so much about the wages. He doesn't tell us what those wages are. The emphasis is here is that they have the same boss. They have the same master. All of God's servants are responsible to God and God alone. And Paul is going to pick up this theme and continue in chapter 4. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Ministers will be rewarded from the same master. Number six. Ministers are partners under the same God. Partners under the same God. Same work, same master, same God. Look at verse nine. For we are God's fellow workers. God's fellow workers. Now, you might have had a hard time translating that like I did, wrestled with it a little bit because there's two possible translations there. The partnership could either be with God. We're partners with God. We're God's fellow workers this way. 
or the partnership is with one another. Which one do you think it is? I think that the fellowship, the partnership, is on this human level because that's his emphasis here, and that both of these guys belong to God. So they are partners under the same God. All of this, the church is God's field, is given so that we understand that human ministers are important. But it's only God who does the work. That perspective causes us to praise God for whatever we see going on in our lives and in our church and in our world, doesn't it? We understand that there are a lot of people involved, but it's ultimately God who does the work. That that perspective causes us to think appropriately about those people who minister in our lives and to thank God for them. And, And I would suggest reach out and thank them for their important but not primary ministry. You can even say that in the card. I'm really thankful to God for you. You're important. You're not primary. You're not God. You know, you can get dirty about it if you want to. You just press on it. You don't get a big head about this thing. This perspective causes us to see also the importance of ministry in God's field, doesn't it? Doesn't it show you that God uses his people to do his work? Isn't that a beautiful privilege that we have? Not just as a vocational minister, but every one of us. We have to plant and water the gospel into our kids plant and water the gospel into our neighbors, fellow workers at our jobs, here, member to member in counseling or mentorship or discipleship. That leads us to Paul's second metaphor. The first metaphor, the church is God's field. The second metaphor, the church is God's building. And just as the first metaphor emphasized that the human ministers are important, but God is primary, this metaphor, the church being God's field, emphasizes how those ministers are to do the work. Not just the importance of the minister, but how they're to do the work. It begins at the end of verse 9 and then goes through verse 15. Let's read this together. You are God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test What sort of work each one has done? 
if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You see the metaphor of God's building there? This is a common metaphor in the Bible. What sort of building do you think he might be talking about? I think all of us would immediately think a temple. And I think it's appropriate to think temple here. For one reason, because he immediately starts talking about you are God's temple next. But he wants to emphasize just the building nature here. He's going to get to the, to the, the, uh, the metaphor of the temple in verse 16 and 17 and draw some things that are especially, uh, uh notable about temples. But right now he just wants us to think building. First Peter chapter two, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So often when people think about the church, they think about a building. The Bible says the church is not a building. The Bible says we are God's building. We are living stones built on the living stone, the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The household of God. If you were to tell your kids, kids, where's the household of God? Would they point to the church and then bring you here and come into this quote unquote sanctuary? This is not the house of God. Ephesians chapter two tells us the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. We, his church, the people are the household of God. And he's going to get to that in just a moment when he calls his church the temple. But right now, Paul's focusing on the whole construction industry. And he uses this metaphor of the church being God's building and speaking about the craftsman who build it, and here's in essence what he says. Those who build the church must build with the gospel of Christ. The church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And the only acceptable materials to continue building is the same gospel of Christ. Do you remember his emphasis from chapter 1 and chapter 2? how we don't go on from the gospel of Christ, that the cross is the power and wisdom of God. The church is God's building, and those who build, those human ministers, those human craftsmen who put their hand to the, to the church must build with the gospel of Christ. So look at verse 10 and 11, and you're going to see a, uh, a structure of three things, kind of like a target. Um, guys, you can think archery. Ladies, you can think the store, because I know you've been there, like some of you just this morning. All right, so think target, right? On the outside ring, he emphasizes the foundation. You see in verse 10, and then it again, and again at the end of verse 11, according to the grace that God has given me, like a skilled master builder, I 
laid a foundation. Outside ring. He ends in verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Come on in one ring more. I laid the foundation and someone else is building on it. Verse 10. So not only this foundation, but now there are multiple craftsmen in the process, in partnership together, working on God's church. I started it. Apollos came and he's continuing it. Again, same team, same church, same God. One foundation, multiple craftsmen in partnership, and then the bullseye right in the middle. The end of verse 10. This is Paul's point, the bullseye. Let each one, each one who? Each craftsman, each person who builds or continues to build on God's church, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Every craftsman who works on God's building has to be careful how he builds. And so Paul explains what it looks like to carefully, skillfully build and continue building God's church in verse 12 through 15. Verse 12 through 15. He gives us this imagery. Notice. Imagery of the work. The whole focus here is focused on the craftsman's work. Verse 12. If anyone builds, that's the craftsman's work. Look look down at your Bible there. Verse 13a. Each one's work will become manifest. Verse 13b. The fire will test what? What sort of work each one has done. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up. So the whole focus is on the craftsman's work. And especially the materials that he is working with. Look at verse 12. The quality of the craftsman's work is based entirely on the materials that he's using to build or continue to build God's church. Look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with six different kinds of materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. All of those would have been used in building a building in Corinth. The point here, though, is not to see six different kinds of materials and then to judge each of the six individually, but to see two kinds of materials. And what are the two? Combustible and non-combustible materials. Why? Because there's a fire coming. And it's going to be the fire of God's judgment to test your work, which means that the quality craftsman only chooses the kinds of building materials that will stand the fire of God's judgment in the final day. So you have non-combustible materials like gold, silver, precious stones, and everything that we know so far about 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3 means that this is God's wisdom. 
the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross qualifies as gold, silver, and precious stones. Quality craftsmen continue to build God's church with the application of Christ and Him crucified, rightly applied to worship, community, and mission. Birth, maturation. Every doctrine and practice in life. And then there's combustible materials. Poor craftsmen choose man's wisdom instead of God's wisdom to build God's church. Now, why would they do that? Because that's what people want. That's what everybody's looking for. Those churches grow until they're tested by God's fire in the final day. The craftsmen who use wood, hay, and straw of man's wisdom continue to build God's church with human cleverness, religious programming, Christian psychology, best business practices, pop Christian culture, etc. So we see the work and the materials and all of that is in light of an oncoming fire. You see the imagery of the fire there in verse 13 through 15? The quality of craftsmen's work will be tested by the fire of God's judgment. Look at verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest for the day, the final day of judgment, will disclose it. Disclose it because it, his work, will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Notice in verse 13 that Paul uses these verbs to emphasize what the fire does. The fire, notice, manifests, discloses, reveals, and tests the work of every craftsman. And it's on the final day. That emphasizes the fact that right here, right now, we don't always know the truth about a minister's work. Sometimes it looks incredibly successful because one could build what looks to be an incredibly successful work and on judgment day, it burn up like straw. Don't think too highly. Don't think too lowly. The just right perspective is that the church is God's building. And in the end, the fire of judgment will test it to see whether the craftsman has built God's church with God's wisdom or with man's wisdom. So look there at verse 14. There's two possible results on the day of judgment when the fire of judgment tests every man's work. These are the craftsmen who are working on God's building the church. First result, the craftsman work survives the fire. 
It's obvious. He built with gold, silver, precious stone, non-combustible materials. He built God's church with God's wisdom. The cross, Jesus, and Him crucified. He will be rewarded. What's the reward? Paul doesn't go into the specifics. Because that's not the point. The point is, he was a quality craftsman, and you'll be able to tell in the end. Second possible result, verse 15, the craftsman work is burned up by the fire. This craftsman obviously used wood, hay, or straw of man's wisdom, man's way of doing things rather than God's. And so this craftsman suffers loss. The work is lost. The opportunity is lost. The reward is lost. God's pleasure is lost. The glory of God is lost in that particular work. But the minister is not. Notice, he's saved, though as by fire. And that's not teaching the Catholic doctrine of purgatory there. Anthony Thistleton says this, For Paul, even Christian service, seriously flawed by self-interest, cannot imperil the Christian believer's salvation. Isn't that good? So this metaphor makes this point. We need to be careful how we build God's church. We need to build in light of the fire of judgment. Not in light of numbers, popularity, so-called growth. Faithful craftsmen are revealed and rewarded on the day of judgment by God. Faithful craftsmen are not necessarily clever craftsmen, powerful craftsmen, skilled craftsmen according to the world. Paul emphasized that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, didn't he? Faithful craftsmen are those who build God's church in humility and in personal weakness, depending completely on God's wisdom through Christ and Him crucified, because that is what will survive the fires of judgment. That's how you should judge me. That's how you should judge every one of your elders. That's how you should evaluate those to whom you listen on podcasts and read in books. But parents, that's also how you should look in the mirror of your own parenting. Neighbors, that's how you should look into the mirror of how you are working in this gospel ministry with your neighbors or your co-workers. What, What tactics are you really employing? Are they really God's wisdom or are they man's wisdom? This is an exhortation to every craftsman to build with the gospel of Christ because God is going to test your work by fire on the day of judgment. Metaphor number three. Verse 16 and 17. So first we had a perspective. God's church is the field. 
Those who labor are important, but God does the work. Then we had an exhortation. The church is God's building. Those who build must build with the gospel of Christ. And now we have a warning. Famous, famous text. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Why did Paul write that incredibly famous sentence? It teaches a lot. But he wrote it as a warning. Look at verse 16 and 17. The third metaphor. God's church is God's temple. Do you, church at Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If Anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. If you and I were to go to ancient Corinth, you know what we would see all over the place? Temples, temples, temples. To every kind of god and goddess. The most famous one that we used as an icon on our sermon slide is the temple of Apollo. He was the the most important and complex of the Greek gods. He was the god of everything. The god of art and literature and athletics. He had a huge temple there in Corinth. Everybody, as soon as Paul would have mentioned Temple, they would have thought, oh yeah, I know that temple on the hill. There was the temple of Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love and beauty and pleasure. Temples everywhere. Paul looks right at the church and he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? It's not a building on a hill. It's you. So he uses this imagery of God's temple to illustrate two ideas and then make one strong point. What does it mean to be God's temple? Look at verse 16. God's spirit dwells in you. Just as God's temple is is distinct as the place to experience the presence of God, the church is the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Rather than walking into a building, a sanctuary, and experiencing the presence of God, people experience the presence of God by being around what? His church. Because the Spirit of God dwells in His church, plural. The you, all through here, is not talking about the individual believer, but the church Plural. When people encounter God, it's when they encounter his church. Verse 16, at the end, what does it mean that we are God's temple? At the end of verse 17, God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What does it mean that God's temple is holy? Now, we usually think morally pure. That's not the definition of holy here or in most of the Bible. Holy is to be set apart 
to be God's possession. So, just as God's temple is distinct as belonging to God, his church has been set apart as God's possession. So when Paul says, you are God's temple, he's saying, you're the dwelling place of God's spirit, and you've been set apart as God's possession. You're the presence and the possession of God on earth. Why did he say that? To make one very strong point. Anyone who destroys God's church will be destroyed by God. You see that in verse 17? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's God's temple. It's been set apart as his possession. It's you. So the question, who's Paul talking about? Well, so far, he's been talking about himself and Apollos and Peter and other Christian ministers. So is he talking about ministers who would destroy God's church? Sure, absolutely. Ministers who build on God's church using man's wisdom, the wood, uh, hay, and and straw of man's wisdom. Seeking self-glory in it for the money and the fame and the power. God will destroy them better believe he will. But I don't think he's focused on ministers here. Because in chapter 1, Paul said this church in Corinth is being torn apart. By whom? The members. The members. The emphasis here is on you, members. Don't mess with God's church. Don't you raise your tongue against one another. Don't you fight for status. Don't you argue and strive against each other. You're tearing God's church apart. Warning. Anyone who destroys what God is doing in his church, God will destroy him. That's a pretty serious warning, wouldn't you say? To turn that warning over. What's the exhortation there? Members. Members. Promote and protect the unity of the church. Rather than being in any way part of dividing the church. Promote it. Work hard. Pray hard at promoting the unity of the church. And don't do anything to divide it. You're God's field. Human laborers are important, but it's God who does the work. You are God's building. Those who build must build and continue to build with the gospel of Christ because the fire of God's judgment will come and only what doesn't burn will last. And the church is God's temple. Those who destroy the God's, God's church will be destroyed by God. Therefore, promote and protect the unity of the church. Listen, my prayer is that you'll... See the glory of God in all of this. Can you see the 
how Paul is trying to get their eyes off of Apollos and himself and Peter and say, look, it's not about us, it's about God. To understand ministry, the importance of building with the gospel of Christ and employing the right materials rather than the the pragmatism of the world and what the world is looking for. My prayer is that you'll value the church more than ever. Friends, we are part of something very, very special. Not Winchester Baptist Church only, for heaven's sakes, no. We're part of the capital C Church of God of all time, of all peoples, races, and nations around the world. And it's so special that God sent His Son, Jesus, sacrificed Him, and paid for us with His precious blood. Hey, you don't mess with God's church. Father, thank you for your grace to us through Christ. And I pray that you would, I pray that you would give us the right perspective so that we will put our hands to the task wherever we are. And we will just employ and apply the gospel, Christ and him crucified to our own hearts and lives, to our kids, to our fellow members, because that's what will last. Pray that you would protect us from division, please. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.